swing and a fly ball pretty well hit left field. Conine towards the corner. Conine towards the wall. Leaping and he got it. What a grab by Jeff Conine. Conine swings in the first pitch. High fly ball left field. Deep. It's up. Up and away. A home run for Jeff Conine. Some icing on the cake in the eighth inning. Right field. There's a ball hit by Jeff Conine. Past the diving Eric Carroll in the right field. Here as they start the bottom of the eighth inning off with Jeff Conine, who just ought to retire. He's four for four today. Just forget it. Just retire. He's in the Marlins Hall of Fame. Outside the box with Jeff Conine. It is August third and we've got the home stretch of the season going we talked about the deadline last episode we're gonna mix in some fun more evergreen stuff today i gotta get you on some hall of fame discussion because that's already starting to come up again to the draft with kumar rocker and some crazy stuff going on there a lot to talk about still so let's dive into it today you and i are enduring a storm right now in south florida so if you hear some weird noises in the back jeff you're in weston about 30 minutes from me. It's pouring over there. It's Florida summer. It's just that time of year. Every single day we go through the same thing. It's a beautiful blue, bright blue skies when we wake up. And about uh, half an hour, 40 minutes later, it's black and storming like you wouldn't believe. And it was uh, this was a good one. It was sideways. I know all of our puppies are uh, uh, seeking shelter right now. Yeah, I, I, had to, I had to lock them away and I, and I feel bad, <laughs> but they will tear down this this recording like they will climb on the <laughs> desk. They'll break everything. So I had to lock them away. But well, the crazy thing about all of this is we're in the middle of baseball season. And for a very long time, the stadium that you played in was in the outdoors, wide open. It was the, it was the Dolphins Stadium. Uh, it's now Hard Rock Stadium, but now it's a retractable roof. But before that. We never had that for the Marlins home stadium. And you talk about the unpredictability of the weather. How was that as a player? Because you got to prepare every day knowing that, you know, you're going to take the field, but there were some days where you probably look out and you're like, Oh man, we're not playing today. Maybe you got one in. And then other days where you think you're playing and you don't get one in. How was that? Because I don't think there's anywhere in baseball uh, at that time where you had the unpredictability of weather, like you do in South Florida here. No, absolutely. We we led the league uh, by tenfold on rain delays and delayed games. Uh, for us, it was kind of more uh, earlier afternoon, four o'clock, five o'clock is when the, when the thunderstorms would would fire up and come over South Florida. So there would be an entire homestand. We wouldn't take BP outside. We'd be in the cage the entire week that we were home, which I love BP. I love going outside. I love seeing the track of the ball, the flight of the ball. So that was very frustrating uh, on, on those days and those weeks to, when that happened. But, you know, our field, they, they constructed it knowing that South Florida is you're going to get a lot of water. There's going to be a lot of rain. And even though we led the league in delays, uh, we were toward the bottom in rainouts because our field was so good at handling water. Uh, I think our field was like it could handle up to 10 inches per hour and still be playable. My gosh. 45 minutes after it stopped raining because they had pumps underneath the field. And literally, you'd see puddles everywhere. Like sometimes the entire field would be underwater. They'd flip the switch. These pumps would start sucking that water down. And then within minutes, it's dr- not dry, but the water's gone. And if they got the dirt covered in the infield, we we're good to go about 45 minutes later. 
Wow. So I, I didn't even know that because I do remember a ton of long rain delays, but it kind of makes sense now where there'd be ball games where they drag the rain delay out. Usually they'll, they'll bang the game after about two, two hours of a delay, but the Marlins would tend to drag it out. I guess that makes sense given that they had those pumps, which I didn't even know existed. Uh, but that in terms of your mindset, you mentioned that you can't take the BP, you can't get live balls out on the field you pretty much have to go out there and assume you're going to play. But what about the dead time, the two hours? I mean, the worst part is with the starting pitcher. You might have to pull him after an inning. He, he may have to not even go if he really got hot and uh, just, you know, after an hour of waiting, can't jump back into it. As a hitter, how do you stay in that mindset as well? And what, what was your go-to time killer uh, in the clubhouse? Well, you know, as – as of anything in big league baseball, you get a routine going. And so we all had our own rain routines that we would go through. Uh, we were all pretty good meteorologists, amateur meteorologists, looking <laughs> at the radar, knowing when the rain was going to stop. And then after we knew it stopped, we knew pretty much how much time we'd have before the game started again. So uh, playing cards in the clubhouse is one of the big things that we would do um, to kill some time. Uh, other guys would, uh, read, other guys would watch TV. Other guys would, uh, work out, you know, it, it depended. Um, for me, I, I played some cards and I would, uh, know that about half an hour before I thought the game would start again, I'd get down in the cage. I start kind of warming up all over again, because uh, once you're in that clubhouse for an hour or two, your warm up routine is totally gone. So, uh, I'd get on the bike, maybe in the in the weight room, and, and start uh, warming up a little bit. Get down the cage, take some hacks off the tee, uh, maybe some soft toss, machine work, and then get your routine all ready again. Uh, so you'd have to prep a couple times a night sometimes uh, when those rainstorms came through. And with now the Marlins have a retractable roof and a necessary necessary thing, which is really nice because I even on the other side of it. My dad and I go into the ball games. We'd be driving there, going down the turnpike, and we're like, oh, man, I hope the weather holds up. Like That's that's a difficult thing for fans to deal with, too. It's like, am I going to spend the money, drive all the way there just to have to come back home? It's, it's not great for attendance either. But there is a level of where you're in a dome or a retractable roof. It doesn't quite feel the same to me as a fan uh, when I'm at the ball games. What about as a player, in your experience, did you feel like being inside a dome or a retractable roof felt a little bit less like a ball game or was it all kind of the same for you? No, no, no. I, I did not like dome stadiums at all. And back then we had more uh, than they do now because, uh, you know, I, I played in the Astrodome. I played in the King Dome. Um, I played in Minnesota when they had the old, uh, the baggy roof, you know, the, the Metrodome. So we had a lot of dome stadiums uh, and all those were on artificial turf, which I never liked playing on. Um, baseball is meant to be outdoors. It's meant to be enjoyed. And with the, uh, the beautiful skies and the, and the outdoor weather on, on natural grass. And that's what I always preferred. Um, and nowadays with the advent of retractable roofs, you get that for the most part. Um, and, for the most part, you're on natural surfaces too, but you know sometimes it doesn't work out that way. I know the Marlins just went to artificial turf this year just because of the challenge they had getting that grass to grow in certain spots of the field. Uh, it was always bare, and that uh, becomes not only unsightly, but a hazard to play on as well. So I always enjoyed outdoors. Uh, I, I think most guys would prefer outdoors on natural grass. Uh, 99 out of 100 players would say that. <laughs> Yeah, it's interesting. And, and a lot of players I've seen tend to feel like that the turf can contribute to injuries. 
uh, it's, it's just not as forgiving. And uh, I mean, that's something too, is you don't want to feel like you're playing on, on some sort of surface that doesn't uh, help you with your injuries, but I'm sure they've kind of figured that out nowadays with the turf. But I think back, you know, in the nineties and those times, I, I feel like the turf was just not as forgiving, but they're, they're going to find ways to be a hybrid between the two. And I think the retractable roof is, is the, the perfect happy medium, but with how often it's closed for the Marlins, it kind of shows you how necessary it is for them because even when it's not raining, it's a hundred degrees and fans. I mean, I remember the giveaways used to be a towel at the 1 PM <laughs> Sunday games for the Marlins. And you just put that thing on your head and, and tough it out. And, and that was just not the optimal fan experience, but let's get to the Jersey now because I can't see yet who it is. Obviously what team are we looking at? Is this okay? It's the Indians. Okay. So we've got the Cleveland Indians and also interesting thing. What do you think about the name change to the guardians? Uh, You know, you grow up your entire life and it's the Cleveland Indians and um, so I, I get the, the, the need for the change, but you know, in my mind, the Indians is what I grew up with. That's what they'll always be. And the guardians is going to take some serious warming up to that's, uh, yeah. that's that was an odd choice. I thought for a, a baseball team, I, I thought it was just like, they didn't want to change the name. And so they just added a few letters in the beginning and just scrapped. two letters. <laughs> it's like, it's essentially the same thing. I, I don't know if it's better or worse than the Washington football team. If they were just the Cleveland baseball team. Would that be better? <laughs> I think in my mind, yes. Uh, you know, just <laughs> like they're trying to make up some generic uh, bland as you can possibly get a uh, term to name their team. And what I uh, liked, what I liked actually, character. I would have loved to gone with one of the Negro League names, like the Monarchs or something like that. I thought that would have been so cool to incorporate that back in. They're already doing that with baseball where you know the statistics are going to be more uh, relevant. They're going to be implemented to the Hall of Fame and kind of just be all in the same database. And uh, we're acknowledging Negro League stats, which I think is awesome because you think about how much talent has you know, never got a chance to play in the major leagues uh, because of everything that was going on back then. Yeah, crazy I would have loved a Negro League team. When I was in when I was in Kansas City, I got to hang out a lot with Buck O'Neill, which was a, a treat because, you know, not only was he a phenomenal player, but just an encyclopedia of knowledge um, for Negro League, Negro League baseball. So it was a, he was just a great soul, a, a positive uh, influence to be around, and, and uh, I enjoyed my time with him. I always think about it. I mean, with him especially, but you think about all of the players that just maybe never made it into the big leagues because of you know segregation back then, how much talent was in those Negro league teams or on those Negro league teams. I couldn't even imagine, uh, you know, how many players that could have made an impact at the big league level. But uh, with the Jersey now, I'm trying to think Cleveland. Cause I'm always just trying options. to tie it back. A lot to of you. Options. I'm trying to tie it back to you. You know, it's like, why, why does, why does Jeff have this Jersey? And ah, gosh, I'm going to guess I'm going to guess Omar Vizquel. Wow. You got it. Boom. And you that actually it. ties in because we're going to talk some Hall of Fame. I don't know. Did you do that on purpose? I did do that on purpose. Um, you're, you're, you're getting good with tying these. So that's kind of my little clue. So we got Vizquel. And that was, it has a little note there. Do we know what it says? Do you remember what it says? Uh, I'm not that flexible. That's okay. I don't remember what it says. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm assuming it says, Jeff, best teammate of all time. <laughs> or no, you guys never played together, did you? Never played together, but uh, so best best opponent of all time. Uh, I, I forgive you for the '97 World Series. Thank you. Something along those lines. 
Something like something like that. Yeah. And in that '97 World Series, he he booted one, didn't he? Um, or or was no, that the big one was um, second baseman um, who was also sure-handed. Oh, Tony uh, Tony Fernandez. No. Yes, Tony Fernandez. He, yeah, one of the most sure-handed second baseman you're going to get. But uh, he made a critical error there in Game Seven that uh, eventually led to us winning the World Series. He also had a big hit in that one too, though, right? And that's the thing that's really tough is as they always say, you you, you do the good thing, they forget. You do, but eh, exactly. It depends. It goes both ways. If you do the good thing, but then the bad thing is is what really shines through. It. Bill Buckner, the guy Bill got twenty eight hundred hits in his career. One of the best hitters uh, of that generation, and all we remember him for is a ball through the legs. That's it. And God, is that is that something you think about as a player? Is that like a fear where you can do eighteen years of incredible things and then one massive faux pas on a big stage, and you almost are overshadowed. No, I don't think you ever think about that. Um, obviously, post error or post screw up, you're going to think about it for the rest of your career. But at that moment, you know, you're thinking about the the task at hand. And and we've talked about this before: is when a AAA guy comes up to the big leagues, if they're thinking about doing that thing, making an error that everyone's going to remember, or uh, being on Sports Center for the wrong reason, that's the guys that aren't going to succeed and continue being big leaguers. So um, you always you're never thinking about making an error um, because you will. <laughs> Once you're thinking about uh, messing up, that's when your mechanics screw up. That's when you start or uh, going outside your box and making that tight throw or, or being able not to swing a bat in big situations or any situation. So no, we don't really don't think about that. So what's the story behind the Jersey here? And uh, obviously we know how sure handed Vizquel was, but uh, did, how many times did he rob you from a hit? Maybe. <laughs> Yeah, that was, you know, we were talking about uh, the Hall of Fame and him being uh, one of the ones on the ballot. That's going to be an interesting dis- discussion um, as far as getting elected or not being elected. And uh, when you look at how many hits he stole from me, uh, it was countless, you know, a, a lot, a lot of hits. And just one of those sure handed guys that you knew if it hit it anywhere in that vicinity, you're out. And, you know, 11 gold gloves, uh, one of the highest totals in in history at shortstop. And just one of those guys, it's an interesting conversation because, you know, he wasn't an offensive threat. You know, he's a good hitter, uh, 270-ish career hitter, amassed a, a ton of hits just because he played for so long and was in the lineup every single day, never injured. Uh, always one of those consistent forces that are, are an interesting um, conversation about, is he a Hall of Fame caliber? Well, that's kind of my question for you uh, as a guy that you know was around for a while. You, you, you amassed those, those cumulative stats and you know how hard it is to consistently put up offensive numbers that are even respectable year in and year out. I mean, that's just so hard to not have those bad years to not hit a bit of a wall. I mean, we even see guys like Albert Pujols just steeply drop off uh, in the second half of their career. Obviously, Pujols, because of what he did in the front half, is a first ballot Hall of Famer. But it just kind of goes to the fact that it is so hard to maintain your performance for an extended period of time. Uh, On the defensive side of things, Vizquel did that. But on the offensive side of things, you kind of mentioned it. He was able to amass numbers, but year to year was average to maybe even at times below average offensively. How do you weigh that out in your eyes? Because the, the, the Hall of Fame is an individual thing that is voted on by a group. That's the way it, it is, really. Every guy has their own cri- or, or gal has their own criteria, and then it all ends up just being a majority vote. 
So what's your criteria here? How do you weigh the offense versus the defense uh, when it comes to this kind of Hall of Fame voting? Well, when you look up up the middle, like we talked about before, it's the premium positions uh, that are coveted defensively. Catch your shortstop, second base, center field. And offensively, traditionally, those guys aren't your big producers as far as runs, average, things like that. Usually they're speedy, so they'll be on the top of the lineup, leadoff guys, maybe high on base just because they walk a lot, a lot of stolen bases. Um, But when you look at big power numbers, no. Driving in runs, no. Um, When you look at the other side of the ball, now, how did they affect the game defensively? Did they dominate their field or their era defensively and Omar Vizquel. Yes. He dominated his position defensively. And for me, when you look at those premium positions up the middle, that's as big, if not bigger than the offensive side. So uh, did Omar Vizquel dominate his era defensively? Yes. Does he deserve to be in the hall of fame because of that for me? Yes. I love it. I love it. And you know, you, you look at the really important things that I think are determining factors in Hall of Fame, and it's war, right? So, so no, I'm kidding. But that, uh, that you look at the full stat of war. <laughs> so Omar Vizquel's war is was 45.6. Uh, the guys above him, Scott Rowland, 70.1 uh, on the war. We don't really care about war. We've already gone over that. And if you're new to the show, go dig back a few episodes back. We talk about war uh, and Jeff talks about how much he loves it. But with (laughs) Scott Rowland, I grew up, you know, playing third base and I loved Scott Rowland. You talk about the defense. He, he was a phenomenal defender. There were just certain guys where my dad would be in my ear, like, watch the way he does this. Watch the way he does this. Roland, I have just a, a video in my mind of him just barehanding down the line, throwing it on the run and making it look simple. Uh, he could also hit too. That's the difference. I mean, he, he was not uh, MVP caliber offensive player, but he was a pretty damn good hitter. Uh, Scott Roland for me is a Hall of Famer if Omar Vizquel is. Uh, w- what are your thoughts on Roland? Yeah, well, you know, you look at Roland, and now you're looking at a corner position. So he's a third baseman, first base, third base, corner outfielders. Those are the guys that you want to be your big thumpers offensively. Uh, And defense for those guys is a premium or a bonus. So you're not expecting great defense out of your corner guys as long as they can mash, as long as they can hit, as long as they can produce runs. That's what you're looking at. For me, Scott Rowland was uh, the best of both worlds. He's a package uh, all in one that, like you said, this guy dominated both offensively and defensively during the time that he played. Did he amass those huge numbers, those traditional Hall of Fame numbers that were they're used to seeing, the 3,000 hits, the 500 home runs, uh, the 1,500-plus RBIs? No, but for me, he dominated the time that he played. So the time that he was on the field – he made he had an effect on every single game that he played on. And for me, that's what you look at uh, for a Hall of Fame player. Now, there has to be some um, some semblance of a long career, some uh, semblance of being around long enough to affect enough games to be considered a Hall of Famer. Uh, I don't know what that time frame is. Ten plus years for me, at least that you have 10 good seasons where you dominated your game. We talked about Albert Pujols. He had arguably the best 10 first years of any player in the history of the game offensively. I mean, this guy, uh, I don't think you can compare anyone, almost anyone to what he did the first 10 years. Now the last 10 years, he's been an average performer and below average defensively. He's a below average runner, below under below average defender. 
and offensively an average to below average hitter. But do we discount the fact that he had 10 to 12 years of absolute dominant performance for me? No. So that begs the, the, the argument, what if his career would have uh, ended after 12 years? What if he had an injury after 12 years? Is he a hall of fame player for me? 100% yes. Because even though he didn't stick around enough to, to get those 3000 hits and maybe not even 500 home runs, he absolutely dominated the time frame that he was on the field and he deserves to be in the hall of fame. I love it. I love it. Cause I, I'm on the same boat. I, I've always been a big fan of his. I'm going to go a couple more interesting ones because what I really like about going over this ballot with you is because you overlapped with a lot of these players. So you were able to see firsthand. And we talked last episode about Andrew Jones and talk about dominating your game or dominating the game in your couple years where you were really going well. Andrew Jones was as good as anybody in baseball for a stretch of at least four or five years there where there was really nobody that was doing what he was doing on both sides of the ball where best defender in baseball, arguably, and then also mashing 51 home runs, 40 home runs, hundred plus RBI. Yeah. He struck out a little bit, but in today's game, he wouldn't even be close to a guy that strikes out a lot. I mean, he led the league in strikeouts with 128. There's already guys right now in the season right now that have more than that. Yeah. So, I mean, it's a different game. And I, I know you're comparing errors and everything, but to me, Andrew Jones's peak was as ridiculous as anybody's peak in terms of impacting on both sides. But he also stopped playing at the age of 35 and dropped off after the age of 29. So where does he stand on all of this? Because on the flip side of that, he came up at 19 years old. So he also had that wear and tear and his 35 wasn't the same as your 35 and and maybe some other players. What do you think about Andrew Jones who got 34% of the vote last year still has five more years on the ballot? Yeah, that's, that's one of those borderline interesting cases because uh, yes, during his time, and he put his body through a lot of wear and tear because the way he played, the way he played the outfield was reckless abandon. This guy was all out all the time. Even though he made it look easy most of the time, he played hard all the time. He, he was a base stealer. He was a power guy. And for a premium position like center field, who was probably the best center fielder that I ever played against, uh, to, be able, to be able to go on the other side of the ball and mash like he did and put up those huge numbers that he did for a center fielder was remarkable. And I know we're going to have the voters come in and say, well, he got less than 2000 hits in his career. Um, you know, he only hit, uh, I don't know what his exact numbers are. You probably got him up right there, but 434 on the homers, 434 home runs, 400 home runs for a center fielder. And you have to go by position too. how many other center fielders in the history of the game have 400 plus home That's runs true. That, that played the game and played it as hard as he did and did it as well off uh, defensively as he did. I can't name one. I love what you said there. You got to go by the position. We're not comparing Andrew Jones to a right fielder, right? Because there's just right fielders that hit 500 jacks. Sure. But we got to compare him to center fielders. Like he's in the same conversation as a, a Kenny Lofton, let's say. I know he's not a Hall of Famer, but like Kenny Lofton was a center fielder too. So you're looking at Kenny Lofton, a, a damn good center fielder who had a great career. And then you have Andrew Jones, who was a better center fielder defensively and also had the power of a right fielder or a third baseman or a corner guy. Like there's got to be some sort of value to that uh, beyond what just meets the eye statistically. Uh, I, I'm with you on that one. And I mean, 
an incredible career from Andrew Jones. I would have loved, I mean, he has two more years of what he was doing at his peak and we're not even talking about this. He's probably already in, uh, but, but I do hope he gets in the only guy I saw, at least, I mean, it's probably been done a couple of times since I think John Carlos Stanton did it, but I have a distinct memory of him breaking a bat and going 400 dead central in Turner field. And I was just like, you got to be kidding me. You know, <laughs> yeah. with the, the kind of freak strength that that takes uh, the last thing on the, on the, Cooperstown discussion. And of course I got to end it on the very, very difficult conversation. And you knew, you knew it was going to come up, but we've got several guys on the final year or their final year on the ballot, Kurt Schilling, which I mean, Kurt Schilling, I doesn't really have any ties to, to roids or, or performance enhancing drugs, but has ties to just being an ass. Uh, but that's another thing. <laughs> Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and you got even guys like Manny Ramirez. I mean, Sammy Sosa is not getting in at 17%, but you got the roid guys or the alleged roid guys. And that has been one of the weirder topics. You got the, some people that won't budge. You've got other guys, other writers that, you know, are like, okay, they, we made them sweat it out. I'll vote for them now. And then you have uh, people that have, which this is the worst kind of voter, in my opinion, is the selective, uh, the selective roid implementation where they're like, this guy allegedly took roids. I'm not voting for him, but this guy allegedly took roids and, and I'm going to vote for him. That's where you, you lose me. You, I think it's a zero something. You either all or nothing. Uh, but, but what are your thoughts as somebody who played the game right, who, who didn't use performance enhancing drugs, but you know, were around, I'm sure, a lot of players in your era that did it? I mean, I'm on, you know, and you pulled up an interview, I guess I did a long time ago, that uh, the Hall of Fame should be a, a clean Hall of Fame. And uh, it was a stand in our sport uh, for, for many years. Um, it went unregulated and un, uh, and unpunished uh, for a long time because, I mean, heck, it wasn't even, we weren't even tested for anything. So how do you blame these guys for doing what they can to enhance their ability to make money and to, to put up big numbers? Uh, I chose not to do that, but these guys that did, uh, I think don't deserve a spot in the hall of fame. And you're seeing now that, I mean, Barry Bonds is the greatest hitter I've ever seen. I've ever played against. I mean, this guy did things that, you know, roids or no roids, you know, you still have to have a plan. You still have to make contact with the baseball. You still have to uh, be feared enough to walk 230 times in one season. I mean, that's yeah. insane. Uh, Roger Clemens, you know, there's another guy that uh, obviously spanned two decades of, of dominance. And that brings up the other part of voting is that personality. So you're going to you're going to punish a guy like Kurt Schilling. You're going to punish a guy because he's uh, he's a jerk um, and you don't get along with him or he's surly. Or he didn't give you a good interview or, um, you know, he's done some some questionable things after his retirement. You know, these things weigh on these voters' minds. Uh, we talked about Albert Bell, and he, is, he got cut short by injury. He wasn't able to play anymore, but he dominated his sport. He dominated his league for 10-plus years. And for me, that uh, gives you an entry into the Hall of Fame. When you dominate something for a decade, you know, you got to push the personal side of it uh, aside and say, Okay, I know he was a dick to me and he, he didn't give me interviews and he was surly and he did stuff in the offseason that that was, uh, you know, bad for himself and, and made him look embarrassed, or whatever. But at the end of the day, what is the Baseball Hall of Fame is? Did you dominate your sport 
for whatever period of time. And I'm going to vote on that. You got to push aside the personality and say, yes, he did. We got to vote him in. So when you look at those top three guys, you just mentioned Schilling, Clemens and Bonds, uh, they were not popular. Uh, I don't think at all in their clubhouse and uh, for the media and, you know, what at what point does it become okay, like you said, to vote for him and say, yeah, okay, now I'm going to cross over and say, all right, I've, I've made him sweat long enough. Uh, I'm going to give him the vote this year just to give him a little bit nudge closer, but maybe not all the way to they're actually going to make it. So, uh, I mean, for me, it's it's either cut or dry. You're either going to vote for him or you're not. And if it's because they did performing enhancing drugs, they should not get any more votes in the 10th year as they did in the first year. Uh, I'm, I'm with you on that. Honestly, I mean, it's really hard for me because I'll go back and forth on this one. Usually I'm pretty solid in my opinions, but then, you know, I look at a Barry Bonds and I'm like, he could have went Oh, for 6,500 in his uh, career with the giants and still would have finished with an on-base percentage right around 300. That kind of stuff is just absurd. But at the same time, you know, where, where are we enforcing the morals? Where are we enforcing the rules? And that's where it's tough too. Cause Kurt Schilling, as far as I know, doesn't have ties to PEDs, but for all the reasons we mentioned uh, has the reasons why he hasn't been getting voted in. And that's a tough precedent. I mean, Schillings is as much of an extreme example. I mean, he got fired from ESPN for doing some things, some really edgy posts to say the least and things like that. So it's tough to get yourself to vote for someone like that, but it also sets a dangerous precedent because then morals become a bit Uh, of a gray area, right? Like your morals may not be my morals, might not be somebody else's morals. And now we're basing votes on that. That's where it gets pretty, pretty rocky. So it's, it's interesting to see how that's going to go. I had to actually ask you one more. Speaking of Rocky, Todd Helton. I knew you were coming with this one. Insane. But you, you may be on the ballot if you played your whole career in Colorado, uh, but Todd Houghton, I mean, even you look at his numbers on the road, so good. One about his business the right way, too. We talk about a guy that's just just seemed like a good dude. Uh, reminds me a little bit of how Larry Walker also seems like an awesome dude uh, yep. from by all accounts. I mean, when he got inducted, he was wearing a SpongeBob shirt, which fired me up. But uh, <laughs> Todd Houghton, too. I mean, the guy just put up, even though it was in Coors Field or wherever it was, Mile High at the time, like ridiculous. Now, I mean, he's flirting with 400 but you hit 400 there. So what are your thoughts on that? Given that he played his entire career in Colorado? Well, that's going to be uh, uh, asterisk. I think for most guys that, that play majority of their career in Colorado, when you look at some of their splits, uh, they are ridiculous. Um, and I looked up Todd Helton's splits before, you know, we came on because I knew you were going to ask me about him <laughs> and you know what? you talk about gamers in this game, you know, and you know, people, Oh, he's a gamer. He's a gamer. But when, when players call other players gamers, that means they embody just about everything good in this game. They play the game the right way. They're good teammates. Um, you know, they, they hustle all the time. They're, they're clutch performers. Uh, they're leaders in their clubhouses. You know, it's just a game or a, a term that, that players don't throw around that often to other players. And, for all I know, and for playing against him, Todd Helton was a gamer. This guy was a stud 100% of the time. And from people I've talked to that, that were teammates of his said the same thing. And, you know, he's one of those guys that the splits weren't – I mean, of course, you're going to have Coors Field splits. And his splits were 
pretty damn good. I mean, he had 340 something at Coors yeah, Field. Yeah. Uh, 287 on the road, which was pretty darn good. Yeah. Uh, I was just look over road. a career, 287 is pretty awesome, but you're going to have that Coors Field factor. But for me, he was one of those players that impacted the game regardless. If he came to see us in Florida or we go to see him in Colorado, he impacted a game pretty much every day. He was a, a stud defender, uh, a good base runner, uh, a, a quality dude. And I think that he deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. I, I'm with you there too. I'm glad. I'm glad you you put him in because I, I think when you look at the splits, they're pretty solid in in terms of what he did on the road compared to what you see from a lot of other players who play at Coors. Uh, and I think overall, you know, he got 45 percent of the vote. He's got another six years on the ballot. He'll make his way in there, and uh, I'm I'm excited for that too because I think he's going to have a Larry Walker type of trajectory. But I think he'll sneak in maybe before that final year. It won't be as close. But I mean, again, that that course field factor, sure. But when you hit like he did on the road, there's definitely that's, a, that's a another that thing. Well. That's another thing you talk about. All right, so Larry Walker finally gets voted into the Hall of Fame. His numbers didn't change in the ten years he's on the ballot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you look at a guy like uh, Cal Ripken or uh, Mariano Rivera, or ooh, their numbers didn't change. Why? Okay, their first ballot Hall of Famers, Ken Griffey Jr., did not get 100% of the vote. Who's voting against Ken Griffey Jr. not being in the Hall of Fame? I agree. I, that, that makes no sense. That makes me. no sense to me. Oh, just because uh, no one should be first ballot, so I'm not going to vote for him? Or No, you know he's going to be first ballot. You know he's getting in the Hall of Fame. Why wouldn't you vote for him? He deserves 100% of the first place votes. Ken Griffey does. 100%. Yeah. That, why does that, that – why, why, why is the second year he's – uh, eligible now, he's okay to go in and not the first. <laughs> I'm with you. Look over my shoulder, there's Ken Griffey Jr. right there, the jersey. Yeah. I mean, that makes no sense to me because how could you look at Ken Griffey and say, okay, nah, not this year? I and that that's a that's an interesting argument, too. And I think there's a level of like self righteousness with writers and a self importance that comes with it. Uh, and, and my dream is to have a Hall of Fame vote. So don't get me wrong, but but not because it makes me feel important, just because I think it's the highest honor and it's just it's it's a really cool thing to be able to do. But I also am of the belief that I'm not sure that it should be writers necessarily electing the Hall of Fame, but that's an entirely different conversation as well. Uh, going back to the present now, and we talk about Hall of Famers though too, is this Dodgers team that we talked about has several Hall of Famers and they added one but they still have a lot of the same players that they had from that world series matchup with the Astros and the Astros are basically the same team as well with some young reinforcements, but mostly the same core. We know everything that's happened with the Astros. Uh, I think that whole conversation's a, a bit played out, but there's definitely some interesting bad blood between the Dodgers and the Astros for those reasons. And also because they had that benches clearing brawl last year during COVID, which was like, you can't have a brawl, but they did anyways. It wasn't <laughs> like against a brawl, protocol. but it was kind That's of, protocol. Well, yeah, it literally was against protocol. I think they all got fined. It was one of those just classic, hold me back. I'm just going to yell at you type of things. Uh, but this series starts later tonight. And I think it's going to be a good one because now we got fans back. The Dodgers are ready to go. Uh, the Astros are playing good ball. What do you think about this series coming up? And can you talk about that? Like when there was there a team you hated or like had a problem with or had a history with, and now you're getting ready for a big series. You don't see them very often. Like this is, I think this is going to be pretty cool. Yeah, it's going to be very cool. Um, like you said, we're now in a full season. 
uh, last year for me was just uh, a warm up uh, for this year because of everything that went on. But you got two of the greatest teams in the National League right now do, doing battle. And, you know, with um, the Astros, uh, sorry, they're in the American League, aren't they? Yes. Jeez, I am like, I, I played against them in the National League my entire career. I was going to say they moved. They, they switch over. Move. It's like I'm all confused still. Uh, but, yeah, so interleague play, you get these these two teams together. Um, and it's going to be a preview of possible World Series matchup again this year because these two teams are that good. Uh, the Astros have created their system of the way they go about their business that, you know, besides cheating, besides, cheating size, <laughs> besides the cheating. Yeah. Besides the cheating, uh, besides that, which I think should have been uh, much greater penalties handed down to the players that actually did it, not the people that weren't really in control of doing it. But anyway, uh, it's going to be great. But yes, bad blood does uh, go over year to year. Uh, I was on teams that you always had bad. Like the, when I was with the Royals, the Angels were like that team that you always knew something could go wrong at any minute. If somebody gets drilled or something like that, uh, tempers could flare much more quick, quickly against the Angels than any other team. So I, I see the same thing happening with the Dodgers. I know the media has a lot to do with this. They inflame this situation a little bit because of all the stories that have been written about it. But the players take it to heart. And when you have a bench clearing incident, you know, most baseball fights are a lot of pushing and shoving and yelling. And uh, they look really impressive, but nothing really happens. Um, But it carries over from year to year. And it'll be interesting to see if anything happens this uh, series coming up because we're getting the dog days of August. And it's a time where guys start to get a little frazzled as far as mentally of this grind of a baseball season and tempers might flare a little more easily than they would say in April uh, or May early in a season. Well, the, the interesting thing too, is because that was what I really wanted to ask you was, do you have that level of actually caring that much when it's a team you don't like, because you, you mentioned the media, they are always going to build that story up because they have to. I mean, that's, that's what sells, but it seems like with players and, and sometimes it's the media overselling it. Other times it seems like it's very real. Uh, this seems like one of those times where it could be very real, and I'm excited for this series. You, you talk about the Angels as a team. Did you ever have one of those specific benches clearing moments that you remember where, I mean, you're a pretty even keel guy. We always talk about that, where even you were fired up a little bit. Yeah, it had happened. I know I mentioned the, or the, the Royals and the Angels because the most memorable night that I've ever had in baseball was probably against the the angels when they came to Kansas city. So we had uh, Phil Nevin was on the angels that year, the year before he was on the Detroit tigers and he had an incident at home plate where he destroyed Mike Sweeney, our catcher. And Mike Sweeney was the most likable, nicest human being you're ever going to meet in baseball. This guy was salt of the earth uh, as, as good as it gets. Well, there was a play at the plate, and he didn't have the ball yet, and Phil Nevin clocks him at home plate. I mean, laid him out. So the Royals obviously had a big problem with that. There was no play yet at home plate. Phil Nevin thought there was going to be, but destroyed him before he even got to home plate. Everyone's up in arms, like going crazy, like that's BS and da-da-da. Well, from my uh, experience and what I believe in is that if you've got a problem with something, you got to take care of it right then, right there. Uh, as soon as he gets up next inning, if you really want to take care of it, you drill him there, get it over with, and don't let things simmer. Well, the Royals did nothing to Phil Nevin that series or the rest of that year. Fast forward to the following year, 
Phil Nevin is now with the Angels. He's not even with the same team. And I'm with a new team. I'm with the Royals. I hadn't been with the Royals yet. So I'm coming into a new situation as well. So now this is all post game. I've heard all this stuff is that Bruce Keeson was the pitching coach for the Kansas City Royals. And he was known for a blood for blood. Let's let's make guys bleed. And he hit seven guys in one game one time. So that's what his that's what he was all about. If you disrespect me, you disrespect my team, you're going to get drilled. So Bruce Keeson said that before this one game in Kansas City, that Phil Nevin was going to get drilled. So, all right. So I'm playing left field that day, and and uh, t- uh, Todd Haney was starting pitcher for us that day. And um, Phil Nevin comes up and gets hit the first time, to, first time up. He goes to first base. All right. I know nothing about this. I see Phil get hit. He goes to first base. Fine. Game goes on. Well, later in the game, about the sixth inning, we've got a relief pitcher in there. His name's Jim Pitsley, and he was a six foot five guy from Oklahoma when. You know, 95 was special as far as velocity was concerned. He threw 95 plus uh, out of the bullpen. So I'm playing left field still. Phil Nevin comes back up. They drill him again. But this time it's up kind of shoulder area. And Phil Nevin goes crazy. He throws his helmet down and here we go. It's a benches clearing incident in the middle of the field. I run in from left. You know, I got 100 yards to run by the time I get there, just trying to peel people off the pile, whatever. So that's what I thought it was over. Next inning. One of our guys uh, drills Darren Erstad because they drilled, you know, Nevin starts his brawl. We drill somebody else. Here we go again, all in the field, benches clearing, you know, pushing, shoving, get everybody out. Next inning, they try to hit our third baseman, Dean Palmer. They miss him. They throw behind him. But here we go again. Benches clear. <laughs> Nothing really happens. Da, da, da. Go to the next inning. They try, we try to hit um, uh, Darren Erstad. We hit one of their guys. We hit one of their guys. Here we go again. Bench is cleared. So the is next this one ridiculous to you at this point? This was so ridiculous. Everybody should have been thrown out of the game. We've had about 45 minutes of delays at this point. Next inning, they throw out Jose Offerman, our shortstop, throw behind him. And he gets mad. He goes over the dugout, and starts shaking his bat at their dugout, like walking toward it. Well, here they come. They come out of the dugout. And this is when it got bad. This is when punches were thrown. I mean, stuff is happening. Our shortstop came in and sucker punched one of their were players. And then we were like, we didn't like the guy anyway. So we just said, all right, go get him. And like three of their players chased him down. We're on the ground pounding him. He gets thrown in the dugout. He gets, you know, pulled out of the uh, dugout by our manager. And, you know, I got a hold of Dave Hollins, who is a bull in a China shop. You know, this guy's ready to go rip some heads off. And I'm just trying to keep him at bay so he doesn't go kill somebody. And then finally, after everything is all said and done, ejections, what have you, it was a four and a half hour game that had more ejections than I could think of. I don't even know if we had enough players to finish the game, it seemed like. So I'm like, wow, that was the most crazy, memorable uh, night of uh, brawls and bench clearing incidents. So I talked to Pitsley after the game. And I'm like, dude, what the hell is going on? Why did you, why did you drill Nevin? You know, he, and he's like, he goes, he just shook, he shook his head. And this is a Oklahoma kid, super nice guy. He just like diner. He goes, man, you know, well, I was in Trevor's office. So Trevor was a ground screw guy. He was in the office having a cigarette. He smoked. So he was in the office having a cigarette when Nevin got drilled the first time. So Bruce Keeson says, Nevin's got to get drilled. He's getting hit tonight. So he gets drilled. 
Well, he's in the in the office having a, a smoke. He comes back out a couple of innings later. He gets called on to come in for relief. He gets on the mound. And here comes Nevin. He's like, oh, we were being told to hit Nevin tonight. <laughs> he didn't know he'd already been hit because he was not. He was <laughs> in the Grassley guy's office having a smoke. There's so no boom, way. He drills Nevin. And that's what started everything is because Jim Pitsley didn't know that he got hit the first time because he was having a smoke in the ground street guy's office and he felt awful. He's like, Oh man, I, you know, he basically started the whole thing because he didn't know he got drilled the first time. Oh my gosh. Well, and our shortstop, our shortstop that, you know, that's kind of started the whole thing. The really bad one by sucker punching their first baseman uh, got sent down the next day. He got half of his ear ripped off uh, by the brawl that was happening. I think he might've broken something else. And, uh, he never made it back to the big leagues. Wow. Wow. That, I was not expecting that story. It was a crazy <laughs> one that I like telling that. Cause it was just insane. How many times well, we went on the field. Cause nowadays you have like, the, you know, the game in the clubhouse or, and you have your phone, you can probably see if something happened. Like you'd know if, if Nevin got hit. So that kind of just shows you the difference back then. It's just, wow. <laughs> that's, yeah, that that's, there's no other way to call it than, than just craziness, but that is kind of what I was hoping you tell me. Uh, and, and I'm not hoping that that's what happens in the Dodgers Astros game, but there's nothing better than just intensity. You know, the level of just this like care that you don't see in every regular season game. And they always say a playoff atmosphere. And I'm hoping that this will kind of cultivate that. And I think it will. Um, and I feel like the Astros to a degree, which I do like is they're out to prove that they can win without, uh, the cheating. And I think they kind of showed that even though last year's year was a bit weird, they just crushed through the postseason in terms of their offensive ability and they're crushing this year too. I thought it was a bit lame that they didn't show up to the all-star game. Not, not a single Astro. I think there was five Astros that made it and none of them showed up. I thought that was a bit, a bit cowardly uh, given that it was I, personally, I would say, Hey, look, I got back to the all-star game without all of the cheating that you won't let go. Like I'm an all-star. I would have just owned it, but you know, maybe it's a bit different. I, I don't know, but that's what it's going to be interesting about it. I love that the Astros have this chip on their shoulder, uh, even though I'm not a big fan of what they did. Uh, it's kind of fun. I think it just adds to the storylines. Baseball needs that. And uh, I, I, while it was a bad incident for baseball, these guys can play. I mean, these, look at what Altuve is doing this year. I mean, it, these guys can play. And it's fun to kind of see that fire lit under them again. I think they've got this next level of hunger to prove that they can do it without the asterisk. And if they do it, I know the baseball world will be pissed and I won't be thrilled, but it will be kind of, kind of interesting if they can go out and win it again without the entire cheating scandal casting a shadow over it. Yeah. You know what? It was just handled poorly. I think uh, on both ends of the the media spectrum, the players should have owned up to it more than they, they did. There never really was a, a direct admission of guilt and wrongdoing. So I think if they would have owned up to that, we could have probably passed that uh, or gotten past that uh, level of what we're talking about now and then boycotting the all-star game. I mean, come on, turn the page, you know, you own up to it. Like you said, uh, like some of the guys that actually owned up to their steroid use, you know what? Everyone turned the page on those guys, Andy Pettit and Pettit, yeah. Jason Giambi. I mean, they said, yeah, I did it. I made a mistake and Hey, let's move on. And people did, they forgave yeah. them. They moved on. People celebrated the end of their careers. I mean, Giambi went out, you know, and people were, were rooting for him as the DH pinch hitter guy <laughs> down the stretch Pettit too. 
I mean, Pettit, everybody was rooting for him to finish strong. And, and it's true. I mean, you own it. It seems to be a, a different level of forgiveness there. And I, I have just that etched in my brain, the Bregman just read apology. Like, I am sorry for yeah, what I was did. Awful. Just like, it was awful. Man. It was just brutal. But the last thing I want to wrap up on here, and uh, we might as well just just go all the way in on the controversy. Uh, Kumar Rocker, who, you know, that's a name that we've been hearing about for years now, was thought to be potentially the number one overall pick. Had some inconsistencies this year. Philo was up and down. But, I mean, a consensus first round, top end of the first round pick, falls a little bit to number 10, goes to the Mets. Uh, his physical reportedly came with some red flags, but so far we haven't seen any specifics. Scott Boris, for whatever it's worth, has come out and said, nah, he's fine. He's going to keep throwing. There's, there's no real injury there. Uh, whatever it may be, and then we're going to have to wait and see on the details there, but it seems like it's nothing egregious enough for Kumar to go get surgery tomorrow. I mean, if Boris says he's going to keep throwing, He's going to keep throwing because then he would just go get surgery and Boris would look like an idiot. So there's a level of, of just strangeness here. But then you have Steve Cohen, the owner of the Mets, come out and say, uh, Mr. Hedge Fund, like, I don't invest in things, uh, whatever, whatever. And I, I got to have the quote in front of me. But it, it was very insensitive to the situation, I think. And also it almost like dehumanized Kumar Rocker. He's like players look at, or owners look at draft picks as you know, 10 times the value of what their signing bonus is. Uh, I don't make investments that uh, aren't good. Basically weird thing to say only made it worse, but what are your thoughts on this whole situation, which I think is a black eye on the draft in general. And also a lot more is going to come out, but just early thoughts on this. Yeah, you know, um, you look at, you know, people f- forget to realize that, you know, college pitchers, they're 21, 22 years old and they're getting drafted. They're kids and they have an opportunity to do something that they've been striving for and working for their entire life. Kumar Rocker and, and Jack Leiter were a one-two punch that college baseball hasn't seen in a long time, maybe ever at the top of that Vanderbilt rotation, they dominated. So they get through that excitement of the entire season. They know they're going to be at one point, they're one and two, possibly in the draft, one and three, possibly in the draft. Like you said, Kumar faltered a little bit at the end, but it falls to 10, but still you're a top 10 pick slot value at that point is like 4.4 million. Uh, Everyone's talking that he'd probably get closer to six just because he was that quality of pitcher. And now, you know, it comes out that the team docs say, oh, there's a slight problem here. With, and it was an elbow, correct? I mean, elbows. That's what they said initially. And then they're like, oh, there's more, but they won't say what it is. And it's like, it's just weird. Yeah. Are you trying to get out of signing a guy? You're trying to save money here or something like that? That Then why draft be more Exactly. Be more specific and say, let's, let's, uh, here's the exact problem with it. This is exactly why we don't want to sign him. Um, and then you've got, you know, some groundswell of sentiments, like, like you said, the, the, the draft is broken. So now you've got this guy that just finished one of the greatest college baseball seasons ever, and he's got nowhere to go. He's got to go back to school. Now his, if he doesn't have as good a year, if not better, his draft, draft stock is going to fall. He doesn't have uh, the bargaining power after next year that he does this year. And they're saying he might not even go back to school. What is he going to do? Just work out and then throw his name back in the draft? Like- well, there you go. So uh, if a team declines uh, on an option to draft the kid or to pay a kid, have him become a free agent. Exactly. So anybody can pick him up. Now, anybody, exactly. and, it doesn't, and it doesn't count against the bonus pool. He is now a free agent. Uh, I think another team that needs an arm like that would <laughs> – gobble him up in a heartbeat and sign him as a free agent. Yeah. And the thing is, is they could 
theoretically sign him as an undrafted free agent, but the maximum would be $150,000. He'd be out of his mind to do that, right? Because I'm sure the Mets would have signed him for $500,000 or even more than that, even given this whole situation. That's where I have the problem with it is let him be a free agent. You cap it off at wherever he was drafted, right? Like, so he can't make more than the slot value, let's say from where he was drafted so that you don't have this desirability to not be in the draft. Then everybody would want to be a free agent and have a bidding war, but create some sort of system where this guy isn't just getting screwed by the teams because it's like the Mets draft you then have no intention of signing you. Now nobody else can draft you. I promise another team would have happily paid Kumar Rocker $4 million to be a member of their organization. And I'm so glad you said that because that's going to be something now Well, because the CBA wasn't going to be crazy enough. It's going to be even crazier now. But the problem is this. Do the major leaguers care that much about that? Like who's going to be the one that's representing these minor leaguers or that's representing these not even minor leaguers yet? They need to be represented too, but who's going to represent these amateurs? Uh, That's where, is it even going to come up in the CBA as as we wrap up here? Well, that's the interesting thing because they're not part of the union yet. So, you know, this is an amateur draft and, um, there really is no governing body for those kids. It's, it's all about the owners and, and them drafting who they want to and paying the slot values and, and giving them what, what they want to. So it's an interesting thing to see that, you know, the player association is players that are in the union and on the 40 man roster. So everybody else is not covered by the union's blanket of um, not protection, but um, you know, you're not backed by the union at that point. So there has to be something, um, and I don't know if it'll be a part of the CBA. Maybe it'll be just part of the owners and um, NCAA or, or amateur baseball. I don't know how that's going to be, uh, how that's going to work out, um, but that's going to be an interesting thing to see in this offseason. Yeah, someone's got to represent these kids because it's it's only going to get worse in terms of losing talent to other sports. We, we saw several multi-sport athletes, Clemson football commits, that went baseball the baseball route. But we've seen Kyler Murray and some other athletes go the other route. If this stuff keeps happening, they're going to lose the premium athletes. And that's the last thing anybody wants. And that might be the only thing that gets owners to care about this. So we went into the issues in this episode, which is really fun. And the Hall of Fame voting coming around the corner. We'll see how the writers line up with you. But typically writers and players don't always have the same perspective uh, as they have very different experiences. So that's why I wanted to ask you about it because I'd rather hear from you uh, than one of the writers that makes a selective uh, rationale there. But that'll do it for this episode of Outside the Box with Jeff Conine. We've got a lot more in store coming forward here. August, then September, then the postseason. Fun days ahead. I'm looking forward to recapping this Astros-Dodgers series with you, too, uh, come next episode. Sounds great. It's going to have some uh, exciting stuff that's going to be a fun series to watch. And hopefully they don't drill the same guy twice by accident or anything. (laughs) We'll see what happens. I'm sure some interesting stuff, but talk to you then. All right. See you, Arm.